one of the stories uh, that's dominating politics and society today is uh, that of chaos. And you wrote, chaos breeds cynicism and despair. It pushes us towards withdrawal and inaction. For this reason, those who perpetuate injustice often choose chaos as their weapon. Their only remaining tactic for advancing their agenda of injustice is to enforce silence. They conjure the demon chaos trying to use its power to provoke the other side to despair and give up their struggle. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper here. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. Go ahead and click that subscribe button and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters. Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout out to our annual sponsor, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. He's the senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago and the professor of homiletics at McAfee School of Theology. He's authored countless articles and he has a new book, Dancing in the Darkness. Reverend Moss, thank you for joining the conversation. It is my pleasure, Andy. Thank you so much for having me on. So uh, you're you're one of you know those guests. If we, if we had the time, we could spend the next... 30 minutes just reading off all your credentials and achievements. In fact, I kind of really had a hard time kind of like cutting them down. You know, things like including you, you've uh, you've received uh, many awards. You've been named as inaugural Route 100, a list that recognizes emerging and established African-American leaders who are making extraordinary contributions. So I guess the most pressing question is, what's the trick? H- how do you fit it all in each day? You know, I mean... And that's a great that's a great question. I, I don't see the the resume as what I do per se. Uh, I'm just grateful for some of the, the the hyperbole that's placed in the resume. Um, but you know, my primary focus is is ministry, my family, uh, the work that we're doing on the south side of Chicago, and my deep love for teaching. And I really revolve in and around those things, that they're all forms of uh, of ministry. Uh, put it this way, you know, love God, love your family, love the community. That's what you're, you are called to do in, in, in that particular uh, order, and all those other things flow from it. Uh, so 
my my typical day is, you know, how can uh, how can I alleviate suffering when it comes to pastoral care? Uh, how can I deepen my relationship uh, with Christ? Uh, and how can I nurture uh, and uh, deepen my relationship with my family? Th those are the things that I just attempt to do uh, on, on a day-to-day -day basis. That was such a, you know, uh, an answer given in great humility. Uh, I guess, you know, as, as outsiders looking in, though, we, we see... We see just how much you're involved in. Obviously, you named those things, uh, but you do it with such excellence. Where, where do you think you get your boundless energy and drive? You know, there is. You know, that's a good question. There is a space I think that we all function from, uh, a well that we draw from, uh, as Howard Thurman would would put it. And when that well is filled, you have the energy and the nutrients to do the work that you're doing. When that well is empty, when the well is disturbed by all kinds of forces around you, it creates an environment where the simple tasks become incredibly difficult. And that is why it's important, I believe, uh, for, for people uh, of faith to have spiritual practices and a community. And when I say community, I'm not just talking about church. I mean, for, for pastors, that's, that's community, yes, but you need to have a true community of people who keep you accountable and people who pastor you. And that will always allow the well to be filled and not disturbed by surrounding issues and forces so that you can continue to do the work that you're called to do. You talk about being uh, influenced by jazz as a pastor. What, what do you mean by that? Oh man, um, you know jazz. Jazz music, I, I I believe teaches America democracy before America even knew what democracy was all about. It was my sister, who's who's no longer living, who really introduced me to to jazz. She had this amazing collection of of records. She was a fan of Al Jarreau. She took me to my first jazz concert to hear Wynton Marcellus. And this was this was back in the day for those who were listening. When you, I went to the library to get a Wynton Marcellus album uh, to to listen to it at, at home, and my sister, who was older than me, uh, she said, "You know, I'll I'll take you to to a concert when he when he comes in town." And she did, and it 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 changed my life because here I'm watching someone who is an artist who's drawing from uh, the the African tradition, the African-American tradition from the Spanish and French and German uh, and indigenous tradition, all these aspects of, of different aspects and uh, the, all these different aspects of the American community and creating something new in the process. And the beauty of jazz is, 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 is several things. One, that you have instruments that are not supposed to play with each other. 
you know, saxophones for marching bands and the piano is for, for European classical. The trap drum set is not to be played with, with, with African polyrhythms, what is known as the pentatonic scale. And uh, you have a bass that's supposed to be played with a bow, but they play with their fingers and everybody gets a chance to solo. Bring your own cultural narrative to the table, which is extraordinarily beautiful. What we would call improvisation. Whereas other traditions, you got to play things exactly uh, the, 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 the European classical, or we call classical music, you want to play exactly what's on the page. Jazz has improvisation, which isn't making things up per se, but it's allowing the spirit to move to create something that was not created before. And ministry should function in this manner. You can see jazz in soccer. You see jazz in, in basketball. Uh, you can see jazz in in hockey. Uh, you can see jazz in 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 other forms of, of 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 art. And when it comes to to ministry, there has to be uh, a jazz narrative. And when it comes to democracy, we have to have a jazz ethic that allows people who supposedly, based upon systems, aren't supposed to play together, but they play together nonetheless. When we give people space to share their tradition and their calling. And I just think that we're in a space in America where we desperately need a jazz ethic. Uh, and, I, and I worry in this moment that, that maybe somebody is gonna say that you know jazz is dangerous and they'll outlaw jazz from school or something that you can't study it uh, because we're in this regressive moment where we're trying to relitigate the past and shape an America that never was in, in many ways. Uh, to go back to something that never really existed. Um, and so that's why I think that jazz is 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 important in reference to uh, to ministry, that every minister and every church needs to learn how to play jazz theologically. The complexity of of that answer um, really leads uh, perfectly into this new book, Dancing in the Dark. This is a call to examine the spiritual lessons for thriving in turbulent times. You wrote, let me be clear. I've written this book to bring good news that will afflict all who are comfortable. The bad news, it is midnight, but I've also written this book to bring news that will comfort the afflicted. Um, I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper into kind of the headspace you were in as you begin to formulate this book, you know, putting thoughts into the, I almost said the typewriter, you know, pen to paper, um, whatever method, you know, I say that, but we've talked to some authors that type on a typewriter. So I'm not going to assume how you wrote this, uh, but take us a little deeper into the headspace you were in as you begin to formulate this book. Yeah, I didn't use a typewriter, but I am a person who fell in love with what is known as fountain pens because of a friend of mine, if he listens to this podcast by the name of Gary Simpson, it's all your fault. Uh, because he collects fountain pens. And so I love to write in journals. And that process has been been helpful for me. But the the, the space that I was in was I was noticing uh, as, as a pastor, as someone who works in the community, uh, that there was this collective community itch that people have been trying to scratch, it seems like the last 15 or so years. This collective community itch people are trying to scratch with scrolling or materialism or clout chasing, but they end up 
empty in the process. And, and the book was attempt, an attempt to, to deal with that, that particular itch. It's a spiritual itch that people are really trying to deal with. And what are the resources we need internally in order to transform ourselves? What are the principles that we have to uh, live by in order to transform the democratic project we live in? So what we do internally, spiritually, always has an effect externally. And there are particular principles, and those principles that I lift up in the book are, are love and, and justice. But part of the book, one of the reasons that, 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 I, that, I, that I wrote uh, this, these collection of, of spiritual principles was, was a powerful question my, my son asked me after the recorded death of Philando Castile. He raised the question to me after witnessing this on, online. He said, Dad, am I next? And I wrote a letter to him personally that became a published letter that spoke to the challenges of parenting in the 21st century and to one of our original sins or the original sin is one one, one talks about in this, uh, the idea of the racialized imagination or, or, or racism. And if we can tackle that issue and the issues that are connected to it, uh, we have the window to look out to see a new world that is yet to be created if we can live by these two principles love justice married to each other not separate but intertwined uh, with each other producing uh something new in in the democratic project in in ourselves internally and i firmly believe that those are two principles that uh, every person must face that causes us in, in some sense to shudder because love and justice makes us uncomfortable because uh, love makes a claim that, 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 that all are made in the image of God and justice, not retribution, but justice raises the question of, of the common good and, and our treatment and, and how we are to structure our, our world and the words that flow from our mouths and the policies that we create. And those two things merged together uh, are dangerous and transformative at the same time. You wrote, the greatest stories of love and justice are stories. Their power does not derive from the journalistic uh, precision of those who pass them along. In Africa, the storyteller called the Griot is an elder whose mission is to wrap sacred mystery into the inadequate words of the human vocabulary. Talk to us about uh, the power of story and why they are critical to what you're trying to accomplish through this book. Stories change lives. Stories are our superpower. And for people who are people of faith, who are followers of Christ, we we traffic in stories. Every preacher is a story trafficker, or at least you should be at best, um, because the right story can change your life and other people's life. Living under the wrong story, living under a story of family trauma and a story of, of degradation, a story that I'm, I'm not 
worthy and, and have no capacity limits your ability to fully flourish in the manner in which God causes you to flourish. And in not only in our country, in America, but, but globally, every community wraps sacred wisdom in stories. And even when we witness our society becoming more secular, we still wrap the sacred spiritual wisdom in, in a story. Um, in my family, well, my son and myself, we're, we're Marvel fans. My, my, my wife and my daughter, they're kind of agnostic about it. Um, but these, these comic books uh, wrap these sacred ideas uh, in these stories, not just stories of, of good and, and evil, but these, the idea of grace uh, and of redemption and, and reclamation and holding back one's power, which is very fascinating to me that in the DC universe, Superman never uses his full power. He has the ability to beat certain people, but he just chooses to hold back. Batman uh, never uses a gun because he witnessed what a gun did to his own parents. So he is this anti-gun vigilante, which is rather fascinating. Then you have the, the idea that comes out of the Marvel universe, like Spider-Man, where he, he lives in the shadow of grief of the death of his uncle because he did not use the gift he was given for good. And as a result, someone he loved died. And he's just, just wonderful stories. And then the, 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 uh, Marvel Universe of uh, Miles Morales, which is uh, this, uh, across the Spider-Verse, uh, the, the, the cartoon, you have this coming-of-age story of, of what do you do as you grow and you realize that you have strengths and powers that you never had before, but in, 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 in the whole story is really about identity and coming to terms with your calling. So you have these stories. And then when we go back to the Bible, you, you have these same stories, these, these call stories of people coming to grips with who they are. Moses, the classic story of, wait a minute, I, I'm not worthy. I, I don't have the right speech. I'm not able to do this. The, the reluctant hero is, is consistent uh, within the, the ancient tradition of storytelling of a character coming into their own. And I truly believe that when people thrive, when you, when you watch a young person who has been challenged and is not doing well in school and a teacher comes along and believes in them, they've simply just changed the story. They, they didn't change the location of the student. They're still in the same classroom. They still have the same family. But someone changed the story in their mind and in their spirit. And every time we talk about someone doing something amazing, it's because they have a different story. And every time we talk about someone who does something tragic, we're talking about somebody who's functioning under the wrong story. Stories directly influence the way that we see ourselves, um, our neighbors, the world around us. What do you think are the dominant stories being told today? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, 
I think that one of the dominant stories that has been, I should say, let me say this, the dominant story that's being exploited today is a story of fear that we're losing, that there is something wrong, that the algorithm, the corporate algorithm uses the story of fear and that you're not enough. So the political polarization that we see in America is based on a particular algorithm that, that allows certain groups to benefit, certain corporations to benefit, uh, because it, they, they, you, you scroll when, when, when you're fearful. You, you scroll uh, to something worse. Once you see something bad, you got to find something, something that's even worse than that. Um, and so this, that's the story that's being exploited. But on the flip side is you have this voice or voices of people who are saying that that's not the total, the entire story. That's a small portion of, of who we are, the, the stories of possibility and resilience is the portion of the story that we as the faith community keep telling over and over again, a story of redemption and reclamation. The difference is one story has a megaphone and the other story just simply has voices of people who are yet to learn how to be a choir. And I think that's the, the fundamental difference is that the algorithm of negativity has a megaphone and the stories of redemption and faith are individuals who know this story, but we've got to learn to be a chorus and a choir to amplify these stories of beauty and power. And that's where we are in the 21st century. The, the, the question is really going to be is not as much political. It is political, but uh, it's it's structured around really who's going to be the primary storytellers. And will we tell the entire story or will we only tell part of the story? Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. One of the stories uh, that's dominating politics and society today is uh, that of chaos. And you wrote, chaos breeds cynicism and despair. It pushes us towards withdrawal and inaction. For this reason, those who perpetuate injustice often choose chaos as their weapon. Their only remaining tactic for advancing their agenda of injustice is to enforce silence. They conjure the demon chaos, trying to use its power to provoke the other side to despair. 
and give up their struggle. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper here. Chaos, and in the chapter that I write, I talk about consecrating chaos. Chaos is is a part of 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 the universe per se, but also chaos is utilized by enemies of those who don't want the people to share the power of redemptive stories, of of stories of restoration and all of that. But the thing is, is that when you look in history, you will notice that groups that want to control communities use chaos. Uh, whether you're talking about during wartime, uh, whether you're talking uh, segregation, whether you're talking about the conflict between uh, communities and nations, someone is trying to sow some form of chaos uh, where you don't feel as if you, you are in control and there are, there, there's no patterns of normality. But, but, but what is interesting is that when we learn how to consecrate that which is chaotic, uh, that chaos happens. But we must learn also in life that we have the ability to be able to consecrate it. So what does that mean? So sailors understand chaos better than anybody. And the reason I say that is because they know we don't control the wind. We don't control the waves. We don't control the undertow. Uh, we, we don't control if there's going to be a hurricane. No, we don't control any of that. And when I say sailors, I'm not talking about people on motorboats. I'm talking about people who actually sail. And what's so beautiful about it is that they learn the patterns and they learn the principles so that they can harness what looks to be chaotic and use it to reach their destination. So they build a ship that has a necessary rudder and keel and so it's balanced appropriately. And they put up a sail to catch the wind and when a, a person is sailing, you don't go in a direct line. You tack, you know, left and right, left and right. In other words, you, you, you can't reach your destination going in a straight line. You're always taken in different directions, but you're moving forward, but you're taking, in, you're, you're taking different directions, this tacking, this zigzagging in terms of your, your sailing. And because you're harnessing the, the wind in the appropriate way. And as I was doing some reading on, 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 on sailing and on clipper ships and uh, looking at uh, the, the, the 16th and 17th century and, and, and the, the idea of sailing, come to find out that the number one reason that, that ships wreck has nothing to do with the, the weather. Uh, that they, they found out that the reason that ships get into trouble has everything to do with the crew. So if you have an unexperienced crew that's never been in a storm, the likelihood of the ship to sink is very high. But when you have an experienced crew, then the likelihood that they'll be able to get through this very difficult period is important. And it's the responsibility of the crew to always bring a small percentage of people who've never been through this experience onto the ship so that they can then pour into them and share with them, this is what you do when you're in a storm. 
This is what you do when the waves seem to be coming across the bow. This is what you do in an emergency situation. But if you just have a young crew that has never been through anything, the likelihood that they will panic and sink the ship is very high. And I think that that's just so analogous to life, that the chaos is going to come. The question for elders, the question for the experienced, is will you pair yourself with someone who's never been through these experiences, pour into them so that they can take leadership on this ship and sail us to our destination? And I believe that's where we are collectively in the church, where we are collectively in this democracy. We need some sharing of experience so that we can consecrate the chaos and sail to a better destination, namely a thriving democracy uh, that is rooted in principles of, of love and, and of justice. There's so many powerful chapters in the book, but one in particular um, I want to bring into focus is the portion of on, on rage. You talk about how rage can feel like the most natural thing in the world, how violence demands its own multiplication. Uh, the anger is palpable in many of our communities right now. Um, what's your wisdom for how people not only embrace what they're feeling, but also what to do with it? Hmm. You know, I, I was in conversation with someone who was actually asking about that chapter, and uh, they, they, were, they kept on saying anger. I said, no, no, no. I said rage. I said, there's a difference between rage and anger. Uh, we have to, it's nothing wrong with being angry. That's, that's part of, of the human condition. That's part of who we are. You know, God made us this way, uh, that we can become angry and, and, and righteously angry about certain things. When we move into a rage, we then lose our ability to be able to make an analysis of the situation and to be able to reflect personally and collectively. I didn't put it in the book. It got cut, actually, uh, the portion that I wanted to deal with. But one of my favorite sports heroes is Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali understood this principle. When he would, he was, I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was, uh, I think it was George Foreman. I think it was George Foreman he was fighting. And he knew that Foreman had more power in his punch, that if he got hit a certain way by Foreman, he could literally be knocked out. So he had to come up with a strategy in order to beat Foreman. He was faster than Foreman, but Foreman was a, he was formidable. He was, he was terrified of, of Foreman because of his sheer power. And so the, the strategy was, if I can get him into a rage, he said, fighters are angry all the time. He said, but a rage is different. He'll lose his form because he'll start swinging wildly, which will mean that he'll be using more energy. If he's using more energy, that means he will get tired. If he gets tired, he will put his guard down and I will be able to knock him out. So while he had his mouth guard in his mouth, you really couldn't tell, but he was talking smack to, to Foreman the whole time. He's talking about his mom. He's, he's just, you know, talking about, oh, you, you, you're terrible, this, that, and the other, to the point where Foreman got 
angry, then moved into a rage, lost his form, and the rest was history. Muhammad Ali knocked him out because he had this strategy. He knew that, he knew, understood that that rage, with rage, you lose your ability to be able to reflect, you lose your form, and the principle is the same principle for us. You can be angry, but falling into a rage is dangerous. And there are numerous people who have been caught in the trap of rage. Anger is different, but rage means I lose my ability to be able to reflect and to be able to learn and to be able to hear um, because I become consumed. It's consuming. And we don't want to be in a space where we are consumed and controlled. We can be in a space where we're angry and we're sick of it and we're tired of it. And this doesn't make any sense. But once you move into a rage, you shut off your heart from God using your heart and using yourself in a unique way because you don't want any other influences but to be nurtured and drink from the very bitter and dangerous cup of rage. There's so many things from this book and it's like trying to nail down, you know, what, what to talk to you about. Um, there's one specific quote that sticks out to me. It said, spiritual audacity refers to drawing on inner resources such as courage, faith, self-love, prayer, meditation, or compassion, and the belief that we are designed with purpose and agency to shift small elements in our control that may result in large changes. Can you walk us through the development of that inner resources, as you put it, that leads to spiritual audacity. Spiritual audacity, it, it, it starts with this idea, and, and I'll borrow from Howard Thurman, and I'll, I'll quote uh, him, a really paraphrase. He said that when enslaved people in America understood and realized that they were loved by God, and they were children of God. They were able to shift and delete the story that had been given to them. And as a result of that, they then moved into the area of resistance and resilience. So they discover that and with I use the example of Mary McLeod Bethune with a dollar and 35 cents, create a university that graduates thousands and changes the lives of thousands of families throughout uh, the South. Or Robert Smalls, who hatches a plan to literally commandeer, steal a Confederate warship and sail his family along with 11 other uh, Africans to freedom and then returns back to South Carolina where he was enslaved and buys the plantation, starts four schools, runs for Congress, and then puts in place the policy that we know today as the public school system, audacity, and this spiritual resistance. 
or, or the the literal genius of, of Frederick Douglass, who's considered to be the greatest orator uh, to walk upon American soil, who never went to school, who was completely, utterly self-taught. All of the people that I mentioned were touched by that idea. I'm loved by God. I'm a child of God. The story that the world tells me doesn't have authority over me. And I am now called to, to be a producer of, of beauty in, in this world and, and plant trees in spaces that seem to be only a desert. That, that's what happens uh, when, when one begins to embrace these, these spiritual principles, that a person is transformed because they no longer live the story of cynicism and despair. You know, as, as I look at, at the book um, and some of the difficult conversations that, that you raise, um, you, you bring into light the acts of Dylan Roof, a 20-something white male who gunned down innocent members of a black church in South Carolina. And you talk about the challenges of living among that hatred, brutality, and terror, and the lasting effects within a community. You wrote, you might think the, the only response to relationship of hate and harm is to get out of that relationship, but escape is not always as simple. As human beings, we have no choice but to live in relationship with one another. Our only choice is what kind of relationship we live in. You know, as we face... Um, communities that only seem to be becoming more and more divided. How do we learn to better form the kind of relationships um, that, that we can live in? I think it begins with truth telling, that we have to tell the truth about, about relationships that, uh, that are harmful, that are uh, traumatic and tragic. It begins with having a healthy uh, self-regard uh, to regarding oneself. It, it, it begins by telling the fullness of, of our story. And that's one of the things that uh, deeply hurts me and uh, touches uh, my spirit deeply when, when I hear about uh, teachers and librarians who, you know, can't share stories about Harriet Tubman and Rosa Parks. Uh, they're, they're, they're un they can't tell the fullness of uh, the migration story or immigration to, uh, to America. They, they can't talk about the, the amazing diversity uh, and the unique stories and music and culture that people bring to the table, no matter where they are from. Uh, Europe or Asia or or Africa or South America, uh, the, the, these are the things that um, you know we we have to uh, deal with if we are to become uh, the yet to be. And I'm borrowing from W. E. B. Du Bois, the yet to be United States of 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 America. Uh, that we have to come to grips uh, with these ideas. And it begins with truth-telling and then moves to truth-sharing. 
Uh, and as scripture says, ye shall know the truth. And the truth will set us free. We don't have to be afraid of it. We, we can engage it and talk about it. And it, it may be painful, uh, but it is not destructive. It may be uncomfortable, uh, but it, it's not violence-inducing. It, it may cause us to cry, uh, but it will not cause it. We won't, won't, won't break. And then ultimately, if we tell the whole story, it will always move us to a shout that we're so resilient and uh, uh, our, our, our history is filled with so many unique serendipitous moments that, that God has organized to remind us uh, that we are still being uh, held and have the uh, capacity to move beyond what we once were. This book is called Dancing in the Darkness. Uh, tell us why you picked that metaphor. It's from my daughter. Um, when she was very small, uh, we were experiencing some real challenges uh, at our church. I don't want to give away all, all the details, but uh, it's also in the book. But I, I witnessed her late at night when I thought someone broke into our house. Uh, and I was looking to uh, find who this intruder was. And it was my daughter making uh, some noise as she was very, very small as she was practicing for a ballet recital. And she said, look, Daddy, I'm dancing. And I was trying to tell her, you need to go to bed. Uh, it was 3 in the morning. And um, the spirit spoke so very clearly. He said, look at your daughter. She's dancing in the dark. The darkness is around her, but it is not in her. And, and I believe that that is the metaphor that we must learn to live by. As the psalmist said, I've turned your mourning into dancing. And if you dance, even though it's midnight, if you keep dancing, as scripture says, joy will come in the morning. As you, uh, you know, you pastor pastors, you're, you're training the next generation. Um, how do you imagine uh, pastors utilizing this book within their congregations? No, I, I hope that it would, you know, be a book for, for group study. My hope is it will be a book that will cause conversation that people will have to go back to to give you principles for pastoral care to give you principles for community engagement to give you stories to remember for your own personal spiritual practice will give you a framework for talking about democracy and moral philosophy and will encourage communities to have rich and vibrant conversations with a younger generation about how they envision their own spiritual growth and how they envision the future of this democratic project. Our guest is Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. 
The book is Dancing in the Darkness. You can stay connected with him by visiting revom3.com. Um, Reverend Dr. Moss, uh, it's been an incredible honor to talk with you. Thank you for challenging us to live a complete life, uh, all refusing rage and choosing instead the colors of hope, all fighting like hell for justice and for love. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.